Welcome to another episode of The Scuttlebutt. I'm your host, Sean Hall, Director of Programming with the Veterans Breakfast Club. We're a nonprofit in Western PA whose mission is to create communities of listening around veterans and their stories to connect, educate, heal, and inspire. Recently, in my online research, I came across uh, a really incredible museum, the Navy SEAL Museum, which is down in Fort Pierce, Florida. This is where the Navy SEALs started back in World War II. Well, the Navy SEALs' mission is to preserve the history and heritage of the U.S. Navy SEALs and their predecessors, honor our fallen at the Navy SEAL Memorial, and care for special operations families. Joining me for this discussion will be retired Commander Grant Mann, who spent time in his career, his long career from 1986 to 2020, with both SEAL Team 5 and SEAL Team 6. If you're like me as a civilian, you may not know the differences between all of the SEAL teams. It kind of just, you know, you think that they're numbered and they're different teams, but there are differences. And we get into that with Grant. We discuss his history in service, um, a bit of his deployments, his training, certainly. Um, and we talk about the museum, the programs on offer, and the Trident House Charities, uh, which is a major way that the museum gives back to the community. One thing that I find interesting that I get to talk with Grant about is the way that civilians have sort of put Navy SEALs, uh, these clandestine teams that are sort of working in secret uh, on a pedestal. I, I think that nationally we're sort of obsessed with uh, this very interesting, very secretive thing that the Navy SEALs are. But I think something that's so great about the Navy SEAL Museum is that they are able to humanize a lot of the Navy SEALs that have served throughout history. We talk about that. We talk about how that's kind of a double-edged sword within the SEAL community. Uh, and we talk about family. Uh, I really enjoyed this conversation um, with Grant because I really feel like he was a human. And, and, you know, if you think about these sort of legendary guys that served as SEALs, you don't think of them as like down-to-earth uh, people that you can just have a conversation with. And if you haven't visited their website, you can find the link in the description. And I hope that you support their mission, or if you're able to get down there and check out the museum, they have a lot of incredible things going on down there. Uh, and as always, please like, share, subscribe, and ring the bell on YouTube so you are the first to know whenever we release new episodes. And uh, if you want to reach out to me, it's Sean, S-H-A-U-N, at veteransbreakfastclub.org. Thank you so much for watching The Scuttlebutt. And if this is your first time joining us, Thank you. You can find all of our episodes across podcast platforms or on our YouTube channel. And if you've been with us a long time, thank you so much for continuing to enjoy the journey here uh, about understanding military culture. Enjoy the show. It all started here in uh, Vero Beach, Florida when I was a kid. I used to be in the restaurant business. Mm -hmm. And, you know, back in my, I started in the restaurant when I was 15. And uh, I joined the Navy when I was 24. And that was down here in, uh, well, I was Vero Beach is where I was living. I graduated high school there, which is just north of the museum here in Fort Pierce. And then I signed up in Stewart. And I actually went into the uh, recruiting office in Stewart. And I wanted to talk to the Coast Guard guy. Well, he was at lunch. So Navy guy goes, well, let me show you what I got over here. Mm -hmm. The old story. I mean, these guys are good at what they do. Yeah. So over I went. And then two weeks later, I was off to boot camp up in Orlando, Florida. Was there a reason you, I mean, that you chose to enlist? Yeah, I just, I wanted to, the restaurant business was fun, but I'm like, okay, it's time to, to grow up and do something more responsible and, and mm -hmm. nothing. I really enjoyed the restaurant business. I was a waiter, bartender, wine steward, did all that. But um, I just felt it was time to do something different. And mm -hmm. I always wanted to join the Coast Guard because I was a big diver, surfer, beach, sailor. And I'm like, well, I'll always be around the water if I'm in the Coast Guard. That's now, a far away be. from home, though, because you're originally from Canada, right? 
I was born in Toronto, Canada. Yep. My dad worked for de Havilland Aircraft up in Canada. And then uh, he got a job down here in Vero Beach, Florida with Piper Aircraft. Mm -hmm. So that's what brought us down here in 1967. Okay. So, so no military background in your family. No, not to speak of. I had an uncle, well, two uncles that were in the, the Canadian forces, mm -hmm. but nobody in the American forces. So uh, anyway, I was off to boot camp and and uh, in Orlando, Florida, when it used to be joint, it was male and female would go there. That was the only place. You still had Great Lakes, and I'm not sure if there was another spot. But um, and then I became a bosun mate. So uh, that's kind of a jack of all trades uh, on a ship. Yeah. Got sent to a Spruance class destroyer out of San Diego, California, called the USS Harry W. Hill, DD 986. And um, was on board there for a couple of years. And these guys were coming back uh, and checking in on the ship, getting orders to the ship. And I'm like, well, where are you guys coming from? And they go, well, we're coming from Buds. And I go, mm. well, what's Buds? I had no idea, right? You don't know all this stuff that you do now about the SEALs. And uh, they go, that's basic underwater demolition school, uh, SEAL training. Mm -hmm. So I said, okay. And I looked it up and I said, and I talked to the career counselor. I go, that sounds pretty cool. Maybe I should do that. So I put in a package to COXO endorsed it and uh, flew back from the Philippines on one of our Westpacs and went to Buds. Six months later, graduated, went to SEAL Team 5. Uh, did two tours at SEAL Team 5. Uh, first one was to the Gulf War right off the bat. So I, I graduated Buds. I was at SEAL Team 5 for about eight months. And uh, we got orders in August to go over to the start of the Gulf War. And we're over there for about nine months. And uh, came back from that, another deployment to Guam in the South Pacific, and with the platoon and a lot of FID training, foreign internal defense training, mm -hmm. uh, Malaysia, Singapore, Thailand, Korea. And then came back from that, and I, you know, before I went on that, I said, what else is there in the SEAL teams? And somebody said, well, there's SEAL Team 6. I go, well, what's that? What's the difference? And they found out what the difference was, and I said, well, you know, I'm going to screen for that. So I screened for that. Uh, and I flew back from Westpac, went to, um, went to BUDS, graduated BUDS, did all that. And then after my second deployment to if Guam. I, if I may interrupt, because uh, yeah. this is one of my questions, and part of, part of the scuttlebutt is, is understanding military culture. So, and I wrote down that question too. What, was the, what is the difference between SEAL Team 5 and SEAL Team 6? So uh, SEAL Team 1, 3, 5, and 7 are all on the West Coast in Coronado, California. Mm -hmm. Two, four... Uh, eight and 10 are all on the East Coast and SEAL Team 6 is a separate command. So, so SEAL Team 6 and Delta are the equivalent. So one's Navy, one's Army. Okay. Uh, so a lot of people would ask, you know, what, what's SEAL Team 6 doing in Iraq and Afghanistan? Well, when the towers went down, it was all hands on deck. So everybody went uh, and, you know, the rest is history. The boys did very well. Delta did some great ops over there. We did some great ops. That was a part of the first in, those guys that just went into Afghanistan, yes. fired everybody. Yes, everybody was going, you know, and uh, a lot of people signing up. So anyway, that's how I got to, so I screened for SEAL Team 6, I got picked up, went to SEAL Team 6. You go through another six-month cycle, six, seven-month cycle of training there. Uh, and so in BUDS, when I went into, let me regress here. So when I was in BUDS, I had 120 guys in my class, 15 of us graduated. And then, so when I went to SEAL Team 6, it's another screening assessment and selection process. Uh, it's, a, it's a different level. And 
precision and you have to learn how to do new tricks basically. Um, so a lot of guys can't change bad habits or don't have the attributes that they're looking for there. So uh, what, what attributes are they looking for? I understand, I mean, it's highly selective. It is. Yeah. So there's everything across the board from honesty, trustworthiness, financial stability. I mean, there's a whole gamut. There's probably like 20 of them. And we, through training, we'll tease each one of those out uh, to make sure that we have the right guy and we're seeing the right thing. Because uh, if you ask a psychologist or, uh, you know, they'll, they'll tell you a person can hide their personality for a period of time. But uh, so you, we need to draw that out and find out exactly if this guy has what we're looking for to be able to do this job. Um, and no fail mission, precision, you know, hostage rescue, those kind of things. So uh, we tease that out and, and we would bring in about 65 guys a year into that training pipeline. And we graduate about 30, 32. So even that process, you're bringing in SEALs that have a lot of experience from either the West Coast or East Coast, uh, but they don't quite have all the attributes, all the skills that we're looking for. Uh, so when we, when we drop them from that training program, we send them back to the SEAL teams and they continue on. A lot of those guys are very, very, some of them are captains and admirals now. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it's not, um, we don't look at it as a failure. It's just, you just don't have what we're looking for right now. And some of that we can train, uh, but it's a snapshot. So we, we don't have time to train you. We got to look at the guys. And there's only so many guys per year that can apply, one, because you know we're, we're not drawing down the force from outside to increase ours. So there's only so many guys we can take and screen, assess, select, maybe 100, 100 and something guys a year. And then we'll take about 65 of those guys that we think are going to be successful. And then we'll whittle that down through that six month training cycle. So that's kind of the difference between the, 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 uh, the SEAL teams and, and SEAL team six or in Delta force for that matter. This is a there long way from Florida. You said, you know, you thought it'd be, you know, time to take on some responsibility. Did you anticipate <laughs> that early on? Like I'm going to join SEAL team. Yeah, no, I, I didn't. Uh, and you know, I, there wasn't a lot of uh, articles, research, information back then. So it was kind of like, you know, yeah, this sounds cool and this is what I'll go do. And if you look back at some of the history too, and we, we see that here, a lot of guys uh, from World War II, Korea, Vietnam is like, they didn't really know what they were getting into. But once they got into it, they knew that they had made the right choice. And you felt you did certainly make the right choice jumping in. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I, I did 14 years enlisted uh, as a BOSA mate, and then uh, I went officer and did 20 years as an officer. Oh, wow. So 34 years. I retired two years ago. There's a lot made of the BUDS training. How did you find it? Uh, did you find it uh, extremely <laughs> difficult? Did you kind of, you know, where did you fall on that spectrum? These are good questions. So, <laughs> yeah. So that was... Uh, Buds was fun, but it was, it was, uh, it was hell too. Mm. So, you know, and everybody talks about, so that's six months long when I went through and then you would graduate, uh, at that time and in, in the late eighties, 89, mm. uh, you would graduate and then you would go to a SEAL team and you'd be under probation for a year and you'd work on getting your trident. Now, what they, why be probation for a year? Because just to make sure that, you know, you didn't squeak through the cracks mm -hmm. and, 
and you still um, because you know at buds you can look at a lot of different things, but um, again, I go back to the personalities. What what's your off time like? What do you do in your off time? What's your drinking? What's your you know your financial? And they've done a a lot better job of that now, and they they really do some good background information. And it's very selective now because a lot of people now that the word's out, a lot of guys, you know, young guys want to be seals, right? So, but uh, but yeah, it was a six months long. And then you go to your seal team. So when we graduated, you get your what we call the Budweiser because you know it's a trident. It looks like the Budweiser emblem, uh, very similar. Yeah, but. Um, and then in that training phase, it's broken up into three, three sections and buds. So you have the, you know, the water phase, which is your diving, your hydro reconnaissance, those kind of things. You got your land warfare, demolition, weapons. And then uh, the other part of that is, is through the whole pipeline, you know, the physical stamina um, and just making it through. But one of those weeks is what they call hell week. And that Hell Week really started here in Fort Pierce, Florida, back in 1943, because they were in a rush to get the right guys to get trained and to get over to England to prepare for the, the landings in Normandy. Yeah. So they crunched all that down into one week of serious, heavy training, little sleep, see who had what it, you know, what it takes. And fortitude. Who, yeah, the fortitude and... and Again, I guess, you know, they didn't know it back then, but the attributes and all the things that, that they were going to need overseas. Mm -hmm. So that started here. But Hell Week, uh, if you ask any, any SEAL, they'll tell you that was probably the hardest part of the whole training. So they wake you up at midnight on Sunday, basically, firing and, and spraying down with hoses and flash crashes and just getting the whole thing going. And then you're up the rest of the week. So you get about four hours of little cat naps here and there, mm -hmm. but that's about all you get. And you get four meals a day and it goes on for a week. And it's, it's all kinds of things just to mess with your mind. So it's not just, are you physically ready? Are you mentally ready? How is that different than having a newborn? <laughs> I forgot what that's like. <laughs> yeah. Did you I forget? I forget hell week too. It's probably like a, you know. No, you're right. Yeah. Selective think, amnesia. But Hell Week is, is pretty much always the same. Each baby can be a little different, right? They can, That's true. This one sleeps through the night and this one doesn't, you know. But uh, so that goes on for a week. Uh, you do all kinds of things and it's just, to, you know, to test your mental fortitude. Mm -hmm. So we, that is where they lose the majority of guys. Yeah. You get to, you know, day two, day three and go, this is not for me. I, you know, I want it, but I don't want it that bad kind of thing. Yeah. So. But anyway, that ends and it wraps up on Friday afternoon. And, uh, you know, then you kind of go into a week of, of um, classroom to, to recover. But I could pull chunks of hair out of my head. I lost all my fingers and toenails from immersion. Uh, because, yeah, you're always wet and you're always sandy. Yeah. Yeah. Your first deployment with as a Navy SEAL in, in the Gulf War. Um, yes. I'm sure you felt that the training prepared you for that deployment. What was that first experience like with, with the SEAL team? Did you feel a responsibility to live up to uh, this, you know, this part of the military? Yes. Um, you know, it was very interesting. It, it, it went on when we got the, the notice, hey, you guys are heading over the Gulf. You don't know a whole lot. You don't know what you're going to do when you get there. You just got to bring everything with you. 
and you'll figure it out once you get on the ground. Uh, and we waited around for a long period of time because it really didn't kick off till the new year, 91. So we did a lot of training there. We did some stuff with the Kuwaitis and the, and the Saudis there uh, in, in preparation for that. But I thought, like I only had eight months of training before as a new guy before I left for the Gulf War. Uh, I was a M60 gunner and uh, I felt confident through all the training that I had received that, you know, I was ready to do what I needed to do. And we were the, uh, the platoon that went off the, the coast of Kuwait and did a beach diversion op. Mm -hmm. um, we went in, planted haversacks on the beach, just like an old World War II thing, and buoys out like we were doing an amphibious landing. And they actually thought the Marines were going to do a, a landing there. So they brought a division over to the coast, and uh, General Schwarzkopf and those guys could end around on the backside. Yeah, the right so It was very successful, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, yeah. yeah you know it was just different we we lived in little tiny huts and and it was sparse living and but it was fun good group of guys but in that training you sort of learn sparse living like you don't need much to uh to survive and that's kind of what they train you for right you do you do you learn to compartmentize mm -hmm. right i i can i don't need that i can eat mres for a week you know uh, I'm not going to get a good meal or whatever it might be. Yeah. Uh, sleeping arrangements, uh, but you make the best and guys are very resourceful, uh, in those environments. As your career continued, uh, you continued on, uh, being a seal advancing. Um, did it get harder? Did it get easier? Uh, no, that's a, that's a tough one. I, it's different. You, when you come into the seal teams, you're never, you, you can never get comfortable, right? You're never at that level that I'm comfortable, I'm good, you know, because you've always, you've got that peer pressure from the group that you're in, mm -hmm. right? And sometimes it's negative <laughs> reinforcement, uh, but, and you always have to live up to what you're wearing on your chest and that name, I'm a Navy SEAL. Uh, and if you don't, uh, you get, you get uh, kind of ostracized pretty quick and picked out and or nobody wants to hang with you, nobody wants to be with you, nobody wants to go on an op with you, you know, and there is, there is ops where guys uh, get left behind. Sometimes it was out of necessity, sometimes it was out of, I would rather not have him, I'm gonna take the best guys, you know, that you have, but, uh, but you never sit on your laurel. So going from enlisted to officer after 14 years enlisted, uh, starting out new and trying to uh, go into more of a leadership role uh, and making sure that the guys that are under my, uh, under my control are getting what they need to do the job that they need, whether it's weapons, equipment, training, whatever. So providing that, like giving those guys that the position that I was just in, I would like to have this type of training, or I'd like to go here. Uh, I want more of this. So I was able to, uh, to kind of orchestrate some of that stuff. You, in a leadership. How did you, and excuse the pun, but how'd you get your feet wet as a leader? You come in, you know, taking that next step, suddenly you got guys underneath you, you've been there, but you know, how was that transition? So in the, in the SEAL teams, a little different now, but uh, in the SEAL teams, when you put on uh, either LDO or you, you put in a package to go to NC, uh, officer candidate school, OCS, or uh, warrant officer, you would have to leave the command once you got once you got pinned as an officer. 
So it was, it was like, let's get you out of here. Let's send you somewhere else uh, with new people. And uh, for me, that was Guam. Hmm. So I actually volunteered for Guam because I had been there before as an enlisted man. And I thought, okay, if I'm going to do my first tour as an officer, I'll go over there uh, to unit one in Guam and take the training officer position. Because uh, that was a position for LDOs at that time. And um, so, and I knew my family would love it. And, and we did. <laughs> it was awesome. They, they still talk about it. But that was my first, first one. And it, I, I met a bunch of guys that I never worked with before. I had, uh, you know, the training department over there as the platoons came over, setting up their training, helping them uh, help facilitate their training and getting them what they needed before they went to uh, do a FID event in Thailand or before they went to Korea. Um, so just, you know, kind of setting that up. And then I, then I came back to SEAL Team 6 and took the training officer position there. Maybe this is a bit more of a difficult question, but obviously being a part of SEAL Team, for those guys, they're thrown into probably some of the most, if not the most dangerous situations to complete uh, different difficult missions. How was it getting to know the guys? I know that part of our thing with the BBC talking with veterans, a lot of it's about their battle buddies, the guys that they were with, you know, uh, how was it being in command of guys and knowing that you were going to send them into a very, very difficult situation? Um, it's the job. I mean, you know, you understand and, and what makes it easier is the boys want to go, right? It's not like you're, you're sending them. These guys are all volunteers. They've all been through the same, same training. It's the only place I know of officer enlisted go through buds together side by side through this. Every, everything is exactly the same. Yeah. I don't know of anywhere else in the military. They do that. Um, and that builds that brotherhood, that camaraderie right there. Uh, and you might not see those guys the rest of your career, you know, other than in passing, you might not work with them ever again. Um, but everybody has gone through the same crucible and that buds piece uh, is a defining crucible that I know he's been through the same thing I've been through. Mm -hmm. uh, is that perfect? No, it's not always perfect. I, you'd say there's probably you know three or four uh, percent that later on end up getting ostracized or whatever because they got through those cracks. It's not a perfect system, but uh, for the most part, the rest of those guys, you know, we've all been through the same thing. I think that that bond there is so strong uh, in the teams that that's what makes it special. You know, that, that's what makes, makes the job a little easier. One thing I was so excited by when I found the, the Navy SEAL Museum is uh, you, you, probably everybody kind of knew about Navy SEALs, um, but I feel as a civilian, maybe my uh, understanding or knowledge of Navy SEALs certainly grew after the Osama bin Laden raid. Yes. Um, and, th and that has sort of, I, I would think, and maybe you can answer this, is that sort of has created a, maybe a double-edged sword for Navy SEALs, is that sort of, you know, clandestine, work in the dark, um, but also there's this now fascination, I feel, in the public's, you know, knowledge of like what Navy SEALs are. And when I found the Navy SEAL Museum, I was like, oh, this is a great organization that sort of can help put a, a face to, to this portion of the military, sort of demystify it in a way. Um, but, you know, why do you think that Navy SEALs have, have gained that level of, of sort of mythical, uh, you know, almost legendary uh, stature within the public sort of knowledge? 
Well, I think I think you're right. It is a double-edged sword. Um, there's been you know a lot of people on the news. There's been team guys on the news. There's been guys writing books, uh, some good, some bad. Uh, but I so it's a double-edged sword, and and it did bring you know Osama bin Laden obviously brought a lot of attention, especially when the president and all those guys get out and go, this is who did it. This is where they're at. You know, this is so the cat's out of the box kind of thing. Uh, and to be honest, that, that really made a lot of guys mad. And a lot of those guys that have written books or do these interviews all the time um, for personal gain, right? And not really giving back to the community in, in, a, in a meaningful way, whether it's scholarships or whether it's helping with kids camps or the Gold Star families, whatever it might be. Uh, those guys are ostracized. They might've been good guys. They might've did, did some good things when they were in the teams, but. But again, they've lost that. Uh, you know, we have a saying, it's called the deed is all, not the glory. So, which means, you know, go do the job, go overseas, you know, kill the terrorist, uh, have some great ops, you know, be proud of what you did, but don't come back and blab about it. Right. And so, you're but not that the hero happened. of this movie. Right. Yeah. And this, uh, you know, there, and then, you know, the TV show started. Uh, the movies, all the things that came with that uh, came out of the box. And some of that was sanctioned um, from, from the higher up. So uh, that caused a lot of problems and, and still continues to this day to some extent. So it is a double-edged sword. Uh, but, you know, one of the hardest things coming into this position after being in for 34 years and being told, you know, don't tell anybody what you do, you know, your neighbors... There, there's levels, right? What do you do? Well, I'm in the U.S. Navy. Uh, what do you do in the Navy? Well, I'm a bosun mate. But, you know, what do you? What's the bosun mate do? And you just you try and keep those those levels. But when this all came out, it was pretty uh, pretty impossible. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, so I think those kind of things um, have caused a lot of problems and brought a lot of thing. But coming into this job, it's been very hard because the whole time. It was, don't tell anybody what you do. Don't, you know, you're a SEAL, blah, blah, blah. And now at the Navy SEAL Museum, I have to promote the Navy SEALs in the Navy SEAL Museum. But the way I look at it is I'm promoting the history. I'm promoting the guys. And it gives me an opportunity to give back to the community, mm -hmm. right? Because, and I'll go into this when we get time, but our Trident House Charities, our scholarships, our dog program, all the things that we have, <clears throat> Uh, to give back to the community. So I look at it from that perspective now, and I'm retired, obviously, but, um, you know, doing interviews like this or doing interviews on the news or doing, it's a little different than coming back from an op and going, you know, <laughs> yeah, whatever. <laughs> but I think you know what I mean. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, certainly. I'm that guy, I'm, I, I, you know, yeah. Heard that from the veterans, a part of the VBC is like, you know, a lot of them had to come back and not talk about it. Right. Um, talk to the right. special ops guys that were in Vietnam and only recently have been able to, to start to talk about it because, you know, it's either right. declassified or, you know, they've, it's, it's time. Um, and I think this is, this brings us to the museum and I think we should start. What is, what is the mission of the museum? Well, the, the mission is to preserve the history and heritage of our predecessors. So, 
1943, this is where they trained to go to the beaches of Normandy, as I mentioned earlier, and, and they flew the obstacles. So think Saving Private Ryan, the boat ramp dropping, the Higgins boat, and the guys getting off, going, setting up on the obstacles. Uh, so those guys trained here in Fort Pierce, because this was just pretty, pretty sparse back then. The north side of the inlet was where they trained and blew everything up, and the obstacles, which we still have some of those here. And then they lived on the south side of Fort Pierce Inlet. Mm -hmm. So, and then, like I said earlier, that's where Hell Week started. That's where all the training started here. That was the Naval Combat Demolition Unit. So they were a combination of, of some Navy and some Army guys together, right? And then when they went over to the beaches, they had the camis on, the green camis, the helmet. They looked just like everybody else. Then what happened is they started the underwater demolition team. So when the Pacific started, it wasn't the same uh, operational requirements, right, on the beaches there. It was coral reefs. It was what kind of mines or what's, what's on the way or getting up on the beach and, re, re, you know, doing a reconnaissance to see where the Japanese were or what kind of things are there. So, and they were called the Naked Warriors. So they just wear a pair of UDT shorts, underwater knife, and they had a slate and they would just go in and that's what they record, they just swim in. So completely different. Uh, and then, you know, Korea, the UDT guys went to Korea and then Vietnam started. And that's when, uh, 1962, they started the SEAL teams. Mm -hmm. So SEAL team one and, and two. So that's what the museum is about. It all started here. So there was a, a round building here. You haven't been here yet, I guess. Not yet. But you this will. is like number one on my list. I want to come to this museum. Yeah. Circular uh, building here that was uh, Mel Fisher Treasure Museum, belonged to the county here in St. Lucie County. <laughs> and it was Mel Fisher's Treasure Museum. He had some treasure in there, got broken into. And my understanding is it's probably about the time he left and went down to, to Key West, started looking for the Tocha Margarita. Uh, the building sat here for a while. There was a couple of frogmen in the condos here and they went to the county and go, hey, this is where it all started. Can we open a museum? And they gave them, gave them the building. The county still owns it. but And that's where it all started in 1985 on Veterans Day here in Fort Pierce, Florida. And it's just grown since then. So we have, we have a, the only MH60 helicopter that I know of uh, inside that flew in uh, Mogadishu, Iraq, Afghanistan, and pretty much Pretty much all, all SEALs probably at those times flew in this helicopter at some point. And it's, it's pretty neat because all the guys that ever flew in it, uh, all the pilots and crew, they sign the inside of the nose cone. Uh, and that's here in the museum. Wow. Then we have Captain Phillips' lifeboat. Uh, we've got, you know, Captain Phillips came down, the actual lifeboat. They, they were getting decommissioned or get rid of it. And they said, would you guys be interested in it? And mm -hmm. they said, yes. So it's still got the plexiglass has got the bullet holes in the plexiglass and everything so that's here uh, and then just an assortment so we go from world war ii all the way to present to osama bin laden you know raid in somalia and other things like that and we've got vehicles here uh all kinds of weapons and everything we have here is authentic there's no there's no replicas okay. um so a lot of this stuff is what we call battlefield recovery. It's really hard to bring a weapon or anything off the battlefield now and bring it home. You got to go through the JAGs. You got to go through this whole legal system. You got to demill the whole weapon. Mm -hmm. uh, these aren't. These are the ones they brought back from World War II, from Korea. And we got a lot of family members that come in and go, hey, dad was in Korea. He's got, you know, we opened his safe. He's got all these guns. Would you guys be interested in, in some of these guns? So that's how we get a lot of our stuff, whether it's medical kits or uh, helmets, anything. 
Uh, so we've got a really good Japanese uh, World War II display, uh, German and then American, all the different weapons and different gear that those guys all used. Uh, and then we just come through progression, the Cold War, all the way up to, to where we're at now. How, I guess it's preserving history, but since it's recent history, how do you then add to the collection? You know, let's say something happens tomorrow, you know, when does that sort of get shown in the, in the museum? Well, when does the, I guess there would be a statute of limitation in a way where we'd be like, yeah, you can't really talk about this yet, but eventually you can put it in the museum. Yes. Uh, that, that just goes with, uh, you know, what we're allowed to do. So mm -hmm. things like that, we'll work through our, not our parent command, because we're civilians, but uh, through WARCOM out in, in Coronado, California. Okay. So they control all the SEAL teams. So uh, we'll work with those guys and go, hey, you know, is it possible the class rosters? We've got class rosters, so we know, so we can find those guys that have this Stolten Valor. Mm -hmm. So guys, you know, I'm running for Senate and I'm a U.S. Navy SEAL. And it's like, uh, I don't know. And then you go check and he's not, mm -hmm. you know, he never was. He has to come out and apologize. So we run into that every once in a while. So we keep a database on that. Um, but but as far as operations, it just depends on what the operation was. Like the first Gulf War, the Osama bin Laden raid. Mm -hmm. uh, there's nothing here that isn't that is uh, outside of the box. You know, TS top secret. Right. Uh, everything we have here is is common knowledge, but but we do it in a way to 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 bring a little bit better understanding of the operation and and what went on. We have the the commander's camis from that operation. We've got, you know, different little tidbits of uh, stuff that guys have donated to us. Are, are prior Navy SEALs, are they able to come in and record a story uh, at the museum? And, and how do you humanize these guys who, like you said, have kind of come back and aren't, aren't supposed to talk about it? Yeah, well, some of those guys um, We'll, we'll have guest speakers, but they don't say anything that's, that's uh, you know, super classified that isn't right. really out there. But they kind of give their story of what they did when they were there and how they did it mm -hmm. uh, kind of thing. But nothing that's that's too crazy. And, I, you know, I think that gives a, uh, a better understanding. We don't uh, necessarily have guys come in from Korea, Vietnam and record their oral histories. Uh, but we're working with a group uh, called Green Faces that is doing that now. So it's capturing these guys uh, before, one, their memory goes uh, or they pass uh, and making sure we have a, a data bank of all these different, you know, tell us about your, your time in Vietnam, how many deployments, all, this, all the kind of questions we're talking about, right? Yeah. Um, and then, then capture that and then put that away for, you know, for future reference their grandchildren, you know, children or whoever uh, might come in and want to know some more information. But yeah, that's, I think that's very important. So we've talked a bit about sort of the exhibits. There's a lot of, a lot of vehicles, different, uh, the different eras, different missions. Um, talk a bit about the programs. Uh, these are the, the ways that the museum gives back to the community to sound very important. Yeah, so we have, uh, well, let me, let me just, I'm going to finish up on the, uh, the museum here real quick. Sure. So we also have two space capsules here from the Apollo and Gemini program. I did, so, I noticed that on your website and it was like, wait a second, I don't, SEALs aren't astronauts. Well, they are. 
We they have are. three. There's three seal astronauts. Did not know that. Bill Shepard, Chris Cassidy just retired. Mm -hmm. So he was up at the space station. And then uh, the next one is uh, Kim. So he, I think he's going to go around the moon, but I'm not quite sure. Wow. So, so there's three guys. Yeah, there's 20,000 applicants a year. Mm -hmm. And so we've had three SEAL astronauts. So they are active duty SEALs, but they get, uh, what do you call it, to, the, to NASA, to the program. Mm -hmm. um, and then, then they come back and either retire or continue on. But uh, yeah, so those three guys, so we actually have astronauts. But the capsules that are here are actually from the UDT guys back in the 60s and early 70s when they were... Uh, they were part of the program up at Cape Canaveral, and they would be the physical trainers of the astronauts. They would test their gear. So as far as diving and stuff, mm -hmm. right, they go into the pools, they make sure that the oxygen, all the, all the equipment that they're going to use before they give it. the astronauts are very valuable. <laughs> UDT guys, not so much, I guess. But, and they would uh, have them test all that stuff and then run them through. And then when they splash down in the ocean, they would be the guys that would be off the the carrier or the ship that's out there to go open the hatch, make sure these guys are rescued, make sure there's no injuries and get them, get them back to the ship. Yeah. So that's, those are here. We've got some boats from uh, Vietnam uh, out there. We've got a Mark five, which if you're not familiar with that, it's a huge boat mm -hmm. uh, that the, the boys used. Uh, it, they're all decommissioned now, but we have one of those. We have an O course here. So people can come and do an O course. It's a replica of the ones that said buds. This is like the number one reason I want to visit the museum because that that looks like a lot of fun, the obstacle course. Okay, if you say so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I'd be terrible yeah. at it, but it's you see that as a as a you know, it's like the 12-year-old boy in me is like, yeah, I want to go climb that and swing from ropes. Sure. Oh, they do it every day. There's people. We just have them sign a waiver and then they go out and they can they can run the O course to their hearts, hearts content. But they can all, you know, we have a rappel and, and fast rope tower. We can rock climb on the tower. Mm -hmm. uh, but we also have our memorial. So the memorial, we have 308 names of all the SEALs since World War II to present that have died in training or combat. Mm -hmm. So they're all on our wall. We also have a canine memorial. So all the dogs. So we had dogs in Vietnam. Uh, and they were semi-successful to alert, alert to ambushes. But with the sawgrass, the heat... Uh, the, the swamps, it was really hard for those dogs to operate. Um, so that program kind of went away after Vietnam. And then when we hit Iraq and Afghanistan, it was started back up again uh, and continues to this day. And those dogs have saved many, many lives uh, and have sacrificed themselves in some occasions. So, so we have a memorial to those dogs, beautiful. Um, Does every SEAL team have a, a canine? Uh, yes, oh. every group. So the canines belong to the group, group one and group two, group one on the West Coast, group two on the East Coast. Uh, and they have their kennels, they have their dog guys, their canine handlers, and they, they control that and then they farm them out to the platoons. And then um, that's the other piece we have is our memorial garden. Mm -hmm. So we have flowers from all over the world at the memorial uh, that represent all the places we've trained, fought, uh, bled or died. Uh, all over the world. So it's really beautiful garden too. So we're in the process of getting those uh, designated national uh, memorial garden, Navy SEAL Memorial Garden, national dog canine memorial. Mm -hmm. So we're working on, on that right now. And I guess before we get to the, 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 um, the programs offered is uh, when you took over uh, at, the, at the museum, 
what did you look at? You came out of service, you know, it's a very different job than being in the Navy SEALs, but was there something about the breadth of history that the museum offers that meant something to you that you were like, this is what I want to represent? Yeah, I think uh, I, I talked about the Gulf War when I first went to the Gulf War. Mm -hmm. Well, when I came back, I visited the museum in 1991, when it was just that small round building, I brought back a uh, chest rack, a gas mask and gas mask pouch, racky uh, to donate it and it's in the museum now. Um, but I've always been a history buff. Mm -hmm. So so I think that transition into this is was easier for me. And it's not for all, all SEALs. There's a lot of guys that, you know, and when I, to be honest, when I was in, you didn't really care too much about the history, right? It was, it's really, uh, you're focused on the job, you're focused on the training. That's what, and, and most of us are starting a family or, or raising kids. Uh, and you're just, you're, you're pretty busy with all that stuff. So uh, coming here and then being able to learn, I remember coming down here as a kid and lobster diving, we'd come down from Vero Beach right off of Pepper Park here and seeing these things in the water, these obstacles. And I had no idea what they were, mm -hmm. but that's where the lobsters hung out. And then to come back here now and see some of those obstacles in the yard here is pretty cool. So, I mean, it's just, it's been a, uh, it's been a great experience and it's, it's right up my alley. Was there, though you weren't too focused on the history while in, was there somebody that you still looked up to or was there a particular seal in history that sort of held that status to you of like, that's what I want to be like? Those, uh, well, when I came in, there was a lot of Vietnam vets that were in the training cell. And a lot of those guys taught us some very valuable lessons mm -hmm. uh, as we went through training. Um, but now that, you know, that's changed. Now the guys that are teaching the kids now have a lot of uh, 20 years of war experience pretty much. So, um, so we looked up to those guys and there was a few of those guys, but I, but mostly once, once you got to your SEAL team, you would get in a platoon and it was either your chief or maybe one of the officers or maybe even a, a, a peer that you really looked up to because you, you come in as a new guy and it's going to take you at least one platoon just to, to get a reputation of, you know, being a good guy, being a solid operator, being a, you know, I'm not about myself, I'm about the team. Uh, so, and if, when you see those guys, you can pick them out pretty quick mm -hmm. and you find that guy that's, you know, he's just got a lot of skill. He's good at a lot of different things, or you find the guy that, you know, he's a great shot and you try and emulate him, pick his brain. What are you doing? Right. What are you doing wrong? Uh, or, you know, it could be a, a lead diver, a climber or, or jumper, uh, whatever it is, you go to those guys that, that you look up to that have been there a long time. And that those become you like your mentors. Was it the challenge that kept you going, uh, you know, for your long career in, in the SEALs? Well, this, the story I tell is I call it the poor man's adventure club. So <laughs> you don't get paid a lot of money, but you get to go jump out of a plane, blow stuff up, shoot guns, travel the world. I mean, what young guy doesn't want to do that? Did you get the girl like Tom Cruise? <laughs> I did. I've uh, been married 36 years. Congrats. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So, so the program's a part of the museum, uh, giving back into the community. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I kind of think of it as two different ways. 
the museum basically is kind of a static or a past, right? It's you come in, you see all these different things, you, you see some videos, you watch, you do a lot of reading, you can touch and feel some of the exhibits. Uh, and then that's a big part of the museum. When you think of museum, that's what you think about. But then on the other side, we have a dynamic side, which I call our Trident House Charities. So that is where we give back. So um, the we have four pillars to that. The Trident House is a house across the street that was donated to us uh, by an, a really nice couple from New York. And it's, it's a three bedroom, two bath home. It's got a, a dock in the back. It's on the intercoastal in Florida. Uh, we've got a golf cart in the garage. You can you can drive 200 yards to the beach here and, and go to the beach with your family. And we have a boat in the back. You can take the boat with the family. So when guys come back from deployments uh, or just long training or just want a break, they have a place that they can come to. It's all paid for. It's all free. To Navy show SEALs up. specifically. Yeah, NSW, Naval Special Warfare. Okay. So priority kind of goes gold star families. There's a gold star family. They get it, right? Um, you know, and that's it, all scheduling, which, which hasn't really been a problem yet. Um, but then it goes to active duty guys, right. Coming back, they need a break. They want a place. And then, then it's open for retired guys. Mm -hmm. So that's our Trident house. So we take care of that. Uh, that's one of our charities and we have our canine program. So we, we've given 20, 20 dogs away so far to veterans. And it's not just Naval special warfare, it's army. We've got a Marine, mm -hmm. um, I don't think there's any Air Force, but and then a handful of SEALs too. Um, so that we we screen, assess, select the veteran, make sure what his requirements are, but also make sure that he fills our requirements, the house, uh, his situation, his living situation, his life, his children, what other pets, uh, you know, so we get his requirements, get our requirements, and if it's a match. Uh, put those guys together because yeah. we don't want to give a guy that that's having issues a dog just to give him a dog we got to make sure that it's going to fulfill what he needs right. uh, and the family situation is good and then we have our scholarship program we had over 365 nsw naval special warfare kids this year apply for scholarships and that's everywhere from kindergarten all the way through college mm -hmm. uh, and we're going to give out probably over 400,000 this year Wow. To, the, to the community. So there's that kind of giving back to the community, right? Mm -hmm. To justify, uh, in my own mind, of, of being, uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, uh, broadcasting, uh, you know, seals and, and yeah. stuff, you know, so. Promoting the seal I, ethos. Promoting, yeah. yeah, promoting. So to me, that, that makes uh, everything worthwhile and, and, it, and explains my existence and what we do here. And some of the other guys that are with us here too. Hmm. Uh, and then we have our direct family support. So uh, for instance, the guy's house caught on fire, burnt most of his house uh, while, while eating on the insurance. He had, you know, other issues, had bills. Hmm. Uh, there's a lot of different relief out there, you know, uh, Navy, Marine Corps relief, some other ones, but they, there's a certain parameter that they can, they have to be within and all those things. So where, where the government can't provide, we'll provide. For the most part so so those are the four pillars of the trident house charities and that's what i call our dynamic site here at the museum you mentioned family a couple of times and, and 
may ask a question about about your family because we mm -hmm. hear a lot from our veterans at the BBC about how you know their dad was in World War II. They never heard about it. He never talked about it. You know, they were in. You know, some families come up to us and say, "I've never heard my dad tell these stories." Uh, you know, thank you for, yep. for running these programs with your own family. How was it coming back and being able to talk about what you could talk about? And did you feel comfortable talking about you know your your career in the SEALs? I, I did. Um... But mostly, you know, when you come back, like say the first Gulf War, you know, just a broad brush joke, and then it was in Time Magazine, so so it wasn't like it was hidden. But uh, obviously, the names weren't there. But I never had any problem uh, talking about some of those things. But a lot of times, I wasn't asked, hmm. right? Mm -hmm. You know, would you mind? A lot of people make assumptions that the guys don't want to talk about these things, or you know, if you asked them. You're just going to make him mad and he's not going to want to talk about it. And that's true in, in some circumstances. Right. Uh, but the other, the other thing, too, was when I came home, whether it was training or deployments, whatever, the focus was on the family. So everything gets put aside, not going out golfing with the boys or, you know, we're not meeting for, for lunch or cocktails or something. Everything's focused on the kids, uh, whether it's and give mom a break. So whether it's soccer or field hockey or whatever it might be, it's just spending that quality time. And I always made a, made a point of that to do that. And I think that uh, when you're focused on that, you're not focused on everything else that you just finished up. And, you know, keeps your, keeps your mind busy. And, and you know, the, obviously the kids ask every once in a while, have you ever killed anybody you ever, you know, right. Which we've learned is like, We've learned here, at least on the scuttlebutt, it's like, that's the question you just don't ask. But most kids probably, that, they hear you in the military, they probably think that's, that's what yeah. you do. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and for the most part, it is. But yeah. Yeah. But it's kind of a un, unsaid thing. You just, you don't ask about that. But yeah. And I think that's why a lot of people don't ask about your, how was your deployment or whatever. And a lot of guys don't want to, you know, again, I go back to the humility side. It's like, yeah, I don't want to talk about myself or what I did or what we did as a group, but, you know, right. It's not, it's not about me or us. It's about, you know, the, the country. We did what we needed for the country. Uh, if you, one of your kids came to you and said, I want to follow you and become a Navy SEAL, what, what advice would you give? Or what advice would you go back and give yourself? Oh my gosh. I don't know what I did right or wrong, but uh, my daughter's uh, 29 and she is a Detroit police officer wow. and she's going through SWAT training right now. Wow. That's its she's own back. level of challenge. Yeah. It's funny. It's, that's not what I pictured for. Her. Mm -hmm. You know, she called mom and I, uh, I don't know, a couple of years ago and said, Hey, I got some really good news. And they had recently been married and I go, oh, what is it? And she goes, you know, we're thinking we're going to be grandparents. And she goes, I'm going to join the Detroit police officers, you know, police department. And I'm like, what? <laughs> so, so anyway, she's always been a go-getter, always been outgoing. And, and probably I had something to do with that. The DNA then, maybe. Yeah. My son is uh, going through training right now. He's in Coronado, California. He's going through MA school, master at arms school. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and then he's going to believe it or not deploy to Guam. Wow. Oh so, yeah. So we'll see. We'll see. And then, like I told him, I said, you can go be a SEAL. You can be a SWIC. You can be whatever you want to be a Navy diver uh, or, you know, anything else, I think the military is good for you. So you, you choose what you want to do. Was there something about knowing that your 
your kids are going into dangerous situations as well. But I mean, you sort of were, were doing that on your own as, as a parent and as a father and as a, a serviceman through your career. Uh, how do you reconcile that? I, I think it's, uh, you know, you, you call it the, the new norm, right? Mm. Our family, that was normal for our family. Gotcha. Right. Dad's gone. Dad's training. Dad's doing jumping. He's doing dangerous stuff. Uh, and they have seen uh, many, many friends die or get injured. Yeah. So, so they get it. They, but, but it's kind of normal to them. I think that's probably where that comes into play. Interesting. Um, with our last couple minutes here, how can people support the Navy SEAL Museum? Uh, you can go to our website, uh, nationalnavysealmuseum.org. Mm-hmm. And within there, you know, you have all the different uh, blocks and you can just choose uh, what you want to look at, what you want to know about, uh, history, uh, what we have here, what some of the events coming up, and then also how to support us. We're rebuilding a, uh, a Huey from Vietnam right now to put on display here. Um, so we're always looking for the, it's called a sea wolf. Mm-hmm. Uh, helicopter. So we're looking forward to uh, get some volunteers that are working on that right now, but we need assistance uh, financially to, to help bring that to fruition. Uh, but, you know, and we've got three generous scholarship donors that support us here at the museum, uh, which is unbelievable. People, uh, there's a lot of good patriots out there mm-hmm. and, you know, and they're all over the place and they're good people. They support us. They support the museum. Uh, if you'd like to be a part of that, we'd love to have you. And then come see us. Where do you see the museum going in the next decade? Well, right now we're working on uh, expanding. You can probably see in my office, there's three of us in this office here, right? We're in a little cubby hole, uh, can be challenging at times. So we're gonna, ex- we're gonna expand. Uh, one is office space, uh, a nice armory to keep all those nice antique weapons. Um, you know, maybe a place to eat food because there's not really a lot of places here on North Hutchinson Island and Fort Pierce to, to grab a bite to eat. Come on, and, Grant, do without. That's, that's what you've been yeah. trained, right? <laughs> well, we just, maybe we just get some MREs. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we don't want people to leave the museum to go grab a bite and then come back and then True. maybe they don't come back, right? So we can help support that, keep them here uh, and then expand to the North. What I want to do is get all the artifacts that are out, those space capsules, those boats, uh, get those inside undercover, whether it's like an aircraft hangar type of thing or a boat facility type of thing, uh, to protect those because there's no more, right? Yeah. Uh, so we want to protect those things, get them out of this weather uh, from the hurricanes, from the sun, the, the heat. Uh, so those are that's that's kind of the the museum kind of thing. And then with our uh, fundraising events and everything to continue to grow and give back to the community. Mm-hmm. You know, we do fundraising. We just came back from uh, New Hampshire. I had a big fundraiser up in New Hampshire called SWAM, Swim with a Mission. Mm-hmm. It supports veterans up there, but it also supports the Navy SEAL Museum. And uh, that's very successful. We do them down in, in West Palm and all over the country, South Carolina. So uh, a lot of those events and that helps support. Fantastic. Well, I, I have to say that this is definitely one of the more entertaining interviews I've done for this season. So I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your story and your time to, to talk to us about the museum. Um, I hope yeah. that our audience, if you want to look up the museum, I'll put the link in the description. Please like, share, subscribe, 
ring the bell on YouTube so you're the first to know when we release new episodes. And uh, if you want to touch base with me and I can pass you on to the Navy SEAL Museum, it's Sean, S-H-A-U-N at veteransbreakfastclub.org. Grant, I want to thank you so much for your time. It was an honor and a pleasure. Uh, you're welcome. It was great talking to you. Definitely. And I hope to get down there and do that obstacle course. Yeah. Well, you let me know when you come down. I, I got, will. A couple got a couple things for you. Oh, certainly. Thanks. All right. Thank you for watching this episode of The Scuttlebutt. I'd like to take a moment to thank both of our sponsors, the first being DND Metal Recycling and Auto Salvage. They began as a small hauling and used auto parts operation in the Pittsburgh area in the late 1970s, but they've grown into a full service metal recycling company with two locations, Lawrenceville and Tarentum. DND accepts all types of metal, both ferrous and non-ferrous, that may be generated by industrial manufacturing, construction and demolition, small commercial entities, as well as individual customers. They have a wide variety of material handling equipment and are capable of managing any type of job in a timely and efficient manner. You can contact them for quotes and availability at D&D. That's dandautosalvage.com. Uh, thank you so much to D&D. Uh, they've been a sponsor for quite some time, and we really appreciate their support. Uh, the second being Tobacco-Free Adagio Health. They are dedicated to reducing and preventing tobacco use and to getting the word out about the hazards of smoking and secondhand smoke. They're all about health. So they want people to quit and they have classes and nicotine replacement therapy and a popular quit line, which is the easiest number to remember ever, 1-800-QUIT-NOW. They also educate people, children especially, about tobacco use from cigarettes, cigars, pipes, chew snuff, and other nicotine products like vaping. Finally, Tobacco-Free Adagio Health advocates for public and private policies that ensure healthy places to live, work, and play. You can learn all of what Tobacco-Free Adagio Health offers at tobaccofree.adagiohealth.org, or you can watch our recent episode with Tobacco-Free Adagio Health on the Scuttlebutt, uh, where they talk about a lot of the programs that they offer for those who are looking to quit. Thank you to both of our sponsors for their continued support of the Scuttlebutt podcast. We really appreciate it. Thanks.